Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27 on page 12. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body is thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Films are made, ratings are lifted, boxed series sold, careers ended. Love Island, Love Actually, Love Me Do, All You Need Is Love, Sex in the City. So our subject this afternoon is sex and adultery, and before we go any further, I want to make one thing very clear, and that is that this issue is one that is intensely and extraordinarily personal to every one of us in this room, that there can't be a single individual here who in one way or another does not have regrets in the area of sex and relationships. And I'm not standing before you today as somebody wagging the finger or indeed standing six foot above reproach, but rather as one who's acutely aware of my own failings and thanking God that those failings are not in such a way as to disqualify from Christian, public Christian leadership, but recognizing that all of us have failed in one way or another. And for that reason, I want to begin by putting what Jesus has to say here in the Sermon on the Mount in its context in which it finds itself in the sermon. I've got four introductory comments to make. First, that we saw last week that Jesus delivers his famous Sermon on the Mount as one who's been identified by the Old Testament scriptures, by John the Baptist, by God himself, as the divine long-awaited son. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God the son. He is the son of God who has come down to save as Lord and King. That means as we come to the Sermon on that Mount, we need to recognize that this is not a kind of weekend supplement, take it or leave it, helpful suggestion from an everyday agony uncle or relationship counsellor. This is God himself speaking. He knows us through and through. This is Jesus speaking. There's no temptation that you or I experience that he hasn't conquered. No thought or action hidden from him. He made us. He invented sex. He's declaring the truth, true truth, concerning his kingdom. Second, preliminary. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by pronouncing blessings. They are gloriously revolutionary. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So throughout the sermon, as God holds up, or Jesus holds up, God's perfect standard, if we have any degree of self-awareness, we find ourselves recognizing our own spiritual poverty, our own wretched failure, our moral lowliness, and our desperate need of a righteousness that can only come from God. And that is exactly the point. Only as we come as impoverished beggars to the God of absolute perfection, only then do we find the riches of his blessing. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn their sin. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not standing on their high horse of self-righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then third, the moral teaching of the law, as expanded by Jesus, is introduced by him in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus declares that he's come to fulfill the law. He's not come to lower the bar. He's come to meet it. And so we find Jesus expounding the law of God and speaking in a way that I think you and I could never speak without his instruction from the Old Testament law. And yet, even as we hear him teach it, though we would never have been able to make it up straight from the Ten Commandments, we find ourselves saying, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what murder is really about. That's what adultery is really about. Here is God's perfect standard. Jesus has not come to abolish God's law. He's come to fulfill it. Finally, the moral teaching of the law is bracketed by verse 20 and by verse 48. So verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48, therefore I tell you, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So here we have God's absolute standard. Here we have the bar, if you like, Jesus demands perfection, God demands perfection. He won't lower the standard. And a form of righteousness is required that reaches way beyond the loophole religion of Jesus' day. He hasn't come to dilute the law, he's come to concentrate it. And really, rather than sitting on our high horse and calling for our defense lawyer, protesting our innocence because, oh yeah, we've kept that clause and that clause and that clause, the aim of Jesus upholding God's law and pushing it to what it truly means is to see us on our knees before God, acknowledging our spiritual poverty and then seeking his help. Well, I hope that's a help. We saw last week there is to be no hatred in our hearts, and Jesus pushed us to understand what the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, really means. This week, you shall not commit adultery, commandment number seven. There is to be no lust in our looks, no allowance for adultery. No lust in our looks. Well, then, in verses 
27 and 28, Jesus explores the heart of adultery. Very shortly after I arrived here as rector, back in 1998, I walked into this building from the office one day, and there was a man sitting just uh, over there on a seat. He was bowed over in floods of tears, must have been middle-aged, from abroad, Holland, if I remember rightly. And the night before, fueled by alcohol and encouragement from his business colleagues, he had done something that had put in jeopardy everything that he counted dear back home. And that encounter has been repeated in one form or another over the last 25 years in multiple different ways. Jesus says, let's get clear on adultery. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Uh, The dictionary definition of adultery reads, the voluntary sexual intercourse between a man and a woman who are not married to each other, but at least one of whom is married. And many of us, with a Pharisee, might say, well, I'm in the clear. Many of us, many of us may not. But Jesus would not agree. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, please notice Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. He doesn't just say anyone who looks at a woman, full stop. In my view, some have taken this teaching too far and unnecessarily beaten themselves up. Jesus does not outlaw the appreciation of beauty. But the word lustful intent translates the word desire, and the line between appreciation of beauty and desire is a very fine one. It could be translated, who looks at a woman causing her to lust, so it could be outlawing flirtation. It certainly speaks of allowing the mind to wander, the imagination to develop, and the thoughts to roam. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The New Testament scholar Don Carson says this, all sin, not least sexual sin, begins in the imagination. Please note that Jesus says a woman. He's not referring here only to another married female, just a woman, potentially any woman. And please note he says everyone. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this defines adultery as any act of sexual stimulation with any other to whom I am not married, whether or not I am married, whether or not they are married. Marriage in the Bible is a legally binding, lifelong contract between a man and a woman. And therefore, this redefinition, or not redefinition, but exploring the true meaning of the seventh commandment, suggests that such desire, you know, it could be virtual, it could be verbal, it could be visual. But any act or imagined desire with any other is tantamount 
to adultery. It also says a great deal about desire. Not all desire is necessarily good. Just because I feel opposite sex attracted doesn't mean that my feeling is necessarily of God. It also says a great deal about God's standard. So when Bill Clinton famously made the defense, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, he was engaged in Pharisee religion. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, Jesus is concerned not for man's standards, but for God's. Jesus seeks to hold up not the lowest hurdle, but the absolute bar. Jesus has come to do away with loophole religion and expose tick box morality. Jesus' kingdom ethic is perfection, not accommodation. And aren't you glad that it is? Now, I can hear somebody saying, well, this is so typical. You know, I've come to St. Helens. I agreed to join a colleague and come here. I'm delighted if you're here for a first time and just exploring things. But here you are, William, obsessing about sex. What is the matter with you? You've even written a book called Revolutionary Sex. I would encourage you not to read that publicly on the train. Somebody said they were once reading it publicly on the train, and they got the most extraordinary looks from people around them. And you may say, look, doesn't Jesus realize that we've moved beyond the repressive, retentive, stifling, stunting, tut-tutting of the Victorian era? Can't you see, Jesus, that we only truly live when we allow free expression of all sexual desire? Haven't you read Freud? So let's consider just for a moment the damage of sexual immorality and therefore the beauty of Jesus' teaching. The Bible doesn't have a low view of sex like our culture does. God sees sex as far more precious than you and I do. The Bible considers sex to be the most intimate joining of one man and one woman in lifelong union. The Bible sees sex as a precious durable, not a consumer expendable. God made sex to be the final bonding glue between a couple who are committed to each other in a lifelong union. In sex, there is an exposure of self at the deepest possible level, physically, of course, emotionally and psychologically. That's why we consider this relationship so precious. It's also why breaking up is the hardest thing to do. And because sexual relationship is so deep, so personal, so vulnerable, so intimate, so entwining, so God graciously provides us with parameters for safe expression. The only safe sex is married sex. 
I mean, when you stop and think about it, we can't simply expose ourselves at the deepest level to one person penetrating or being penetrated by another without becoming bonded and bounded in a most profound way. And if we engage in such a sexual union with one person and then another and then another and then another and then another, we cannot do so without causing substantial damage. One person who had engaged in unrestrained sexual exploration with multiple partners said to me after they recognized the damage it had caused, it just felt so empty. So sexual immorality causes damage to self, damage to the other person, damage to the present partner of the other person, damage to the future potential partner of that other person, damage to children, damage in society. And for society, marriage, the faithful lifelong commitment of one man to one woman, is the bedrock of stable society and the psychological well-being for well-adjusted children brought up in secure homes. Strikingly, that's not actually the direction, the incentive that Jesus gives us. So we've looked at lust and the heart of adultery, verses 27 and 28. 29 and 30 explore adultery and the seriousness of judgment. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. So as Jesus expounds the law for us, he says this, look, ahead of damage to self, to others, to society at large, to children, the security of kids, consider our own accountability to God, judgment, the reality of eternal punishment. Now, once again, I'm very conscious of somebody sitting here and saying, well, that really caps it all. You know, not only sex, but also hell, both in one 20-minute talk. Please note, this is not my teaching, it's Jesus's. And Jesus considers that we are answerable to God, that we're precious, made by God, placed by God, provided for by God, accountable to God. And repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, again and again, he references final judgment. Last week in verse 22, here in verses 28 and 29, four times at the end of sermon in chapter 7. So here is Jesus Christ. He steps in from outside our system as Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, the Christ. And Jesus considers us accountable, and Jesus considers us eternal beings, and Jesus teaches us that we are responsible, and Jesus considers us answerable, and Jesus assures us that we will have an end-of-life review, and that the treatment of ourselves and our treatment of others will form part of that assessment. 
So it's not simply that the Chartered Institute of Insurers have ethical standards, and if I am to practice insurance, I must keep them. It's that at the end of life, when we die, we will face judgment, and there will be two destinations, one the kingdom of heaven and the other the fire of hell, only two destinations. And Jesus encouraged us to ensure with utmost seriousness that we end up in the right one. Now, I think there is a sense in which we instinctively grasp the reality of the damage of sexual immorality, whoever we are. I remember an interview with John Peel, Saturday morning it used to be, when he did these interviews, and he was interviewing members of a band. And he asked the band members, what was the best moment of your life that you can remember? And they said, oh, a Saturday night after a concert in Japan with a group of geisha girls in a flat. What was the worst night of your life? Well, actually, the worst experience, waking up the next morning. Personally, in preparation, as I've been uh, thinking this through and reflecting on my own life, do you know, I've thought through past events and accountability to God with the deepest personal conviction, and I suspect we will be the same, every one of us. And given the seriousness of the stakes, says Jesus, we should take the most radical action to ensure our future all sin begins in the imagination, we should take the most determined steps. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is not here encouraging dismemberment or self-mutilation. There's no evidence anywhere that the early disciples engaged in the kind of barbaric acts of hand chopping that one finds in some religious expression today. Rather, the rabbis of Jesus' day often used hyperbole, exaggeration, to make a point vigorously. And Jesus is saying, given the stakes of eternity, the strongest possible steps should be taken. His teaching on hell is not hyperbole. On six occasions he speaks of hell. In each it is literal. And so says Jesus, look, sexual immorality, it will ruin our own lives. Sexual immorality, it will ruin our present or future husband or wife's life. Sexual immorality will damage most profoundly our children's lives. Sexual immorality will steal from any future spouse of that other person. Sexual immorality will degrade society and civilization. But above all, we were made by God. We've been placed by God. They were made by God. We are answerable to God. How dare we invade the pure and holy sanctity of another being created in God's image and steal that which God has designed potentially for one other person, even in our own imagination. 
Well, what steps should we take? I mean, we've looked at this passage, I've looked at this passage with two groups of blokes over this last 10 days. People have talked about conferences and the danger of travel abroad. Others have talked about business meetings and hotel rooms. Others have talked about alcohol, and I know some who've said, I never, ever drink alcohol when I travel abroad. Others have talked about the gym. What would be the radical step, given that the gym can be such a place of misplaced desire? Should I cancel my gym membership? Well, what do you think Jesus would say if that is the case? There was a room in a gym I used to go to. I was a member of a gym for six months until they built it. Canceled my membership the moment it was built. It was a thoroughly unhealthy thing to do. But then retook it up again a few years later and discovered that MTV was shown in one of the rooms. So I never went into that particular area of the gym. What about the iPhone, the internet? Will I make sure that my wife or husband has complete access to everything I look at on my iPhone or everything I send out, and so on and on. But most of all, surely, the incentive is to know that the Lord Jesus made us, that we're answerable to him, that he knows what's best for us, and we want to please him. There is to be no lust in our looks. Well, we must draw to a close. I'm sorry we won't have time for the second set of verses, verses 31 to 30, uh, 32. We, there is a talk exclusively on that on the website. But if I may, three concluding comments. Can we see that Jesus is prosecuting loophole morality of the religious establishment? He really is The Pharisees have developed a loophole religion of tick-box morality, and our culture has developed just such a view of sex, that just so long as I am not being abusive or non-consensually violent, really anything goes with any one or as many ones as I choose. A nudge and a wink, a blind eye. Our society is profoundly pharisaical. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And whether it's Hollywood or the entertainment industry or the broadsheets or the law or the city, Jesus says we need a totally, radically different form of righteousness. Secondly, can we see that Jesus is seeking to drive us back to God on our knees? He really is. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Stop seeking to stand on the grounds of tick box morality and let's realize our spiritual impoverishment. When we do that and come to Jesus, then we're truly blessed and we mourn our sin. We will be comforted. We come to him in meekness. We will inherit the land. And can we see that Jesus is holding up the law, God's perfection, and urging us now, if we have come to him, to live it? He really is. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That means that every single one of us in this room has got work to do if the standard is perfection. 
And I would encourage us to talk to one another, to seek help where it's needed, not to stand on our own self-righteousness, but rather to ask those we know well, how can I be helped in this? And if you're on the brink of a mad decision, talk to a friend about it. And if you're locked into a dehumanizing lifestyle, talk to a friend about it. Come to Jesus for help with it. But please, let's not pretend that we have any ground to stand on. Let's pray together. Blessed are those who mourn. Father, we acknowledge our spiritual poverty and multiple failures. We acknowledge our spiritual weakness and our lack of righteousness. We praise you that the Lord Jesus promises that as we come to him, so we might be comforted, made rich, satisfied with a righteousness that is not our own, and strengthened and equipped to stand. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.